introducing the Chief Executive of the Grattan Institute, and that's John Daly, and he'll also be joined by David Knox from Mercer, and to be there in the ring, uh, managing the ideological tussle, we have our Head of Domestic Institutional Content in Alex Primos. We welcome you to their next session. Thanks very much, Lawrence, um, and uh, thanks, very thanks very much to everyone um, for still being with us. Uh, as we go through this session, we'll have Slido open, so please remember to submit your questions and we'll be able to bring those questions up for both uh, John and David um, after the presentation. We'll also have a, a polling question later on, but uh, I'll pass it on to, to John to sort of set the scene. Thanks, John. Thank you very much, Alex, uh, and thank you, everyone, for attending today. Um, so uh, I've been asked to talk about uh, retirement policy in the COVID-19 economic environment. Um, needless to say, that title has changed a little in the last two weeks. Um, uh, obviously, a lot of the analysis that has been done has to be rethought somewhat. Uh, and so what I'm going to try and do today is marry the analysis that Grattan has historically done on this topic, plus the new reality that we are living in. Um, so the three things I want to talk about are first the principles for retirement incomes. And of course, these haven't changed. Um, these are exactly what they have always been, uh, although perhaps um, recent events have um, made them uh, made us realise just how important some parts of them are. Secondly, I want to talk about how COVID-19 is changing things. Uh, and thirdly, what are some of the likely policy implications of all of this? Um, so moving firstly onto the principles for retirement incomes, what are we trying to do here? The first thing to remember is when we're defining principles for retirement incomes, we are defining the um, uh, purposes of the retirement incomes system, not just superannuation. Superannuation is only one part of that system and arguably the um, smallest part of it. Uh, so whether we look at the... Um, uh, wealth of households for who are 45 to 54 or those who are older, um, you see a relatively similar pattern, um, which is that typically for most households, the age pension is worth, or at least the NPV of the age pension, is worth more than their super. Of course, the NB, NPV of the age pension for 75-year-olds is less because um, they're not going to live for as long as 65-year-olds. But, but the pattern is pretty clear um, that the age pension is worth a lot for most households uh, and that's true even for those 55 to 64-year-olds who've been um, busy you know, putting as much of their um, other assets into super as they can given the tax advantages. Even then, other assets for most households are larger than their super assets. Now, to be fair, that is very much concentrated in the top 20% of uh, income earners. But we do have to bear in mind that when people are thinking about their retirement incomes, um, a lot of households, particularly those in the top 20% and particularly those who either owned a business or were self-employed, um, often have a lot of assets outside of superannuation. And then, of course, there's the value of owner-occupied housing, uh, which is worth a lot, um, uh, not least because of the way that it is um, ex or that it's um, only the first two hundred thousand dollars of your home is included in the age pension. So um, when we're trying to define the, the purpose and the principles of the retirement income system, I would suggest have to very much think about super as being one part of that system and bear in mind that no matter how hard we push on the super lever, it's probably still going to be smaller than some of the other levers uh, for many households. 
So what are those objectives? I would suggest, suggest there are fundamentally two objectives. Um, the first objective is to prevent poverty. Um, we don't like the idea of people living in retirement uh, in a way that they're just not going to have um, anything like enough to live a reasonable life. Um, in terms of assessing poverty, home ownership matters a lot. Um, so for uh, households that own their own home, uh, the, given Australia's current setup, essentially the current age pension, full age pension, ensures that none of those households are likely to live in poverty, as I said, provided they own their own home. If they're renting, it's a very different story. Uh, and, of course, what that implies is that um, uh, if you're worried about households that don't own their own home, the right answer is probably going to be more in the way of rent assistance rather than any other policy intervention. The second thing I would point out is um, for those who are on low incomes, um, the value of age, pension and rent assistance is always going to be way more than any amount of super that they have saved. Why is that? Because essentially households down in the bottom 20% typically earn materially less um, uh, th while they're working age um, than they do uh, once they're on the full age pension. Why is that? And the answer is, well, because certainly up until two weeks ago, um, New Start was worth a lot less than the age pension. If you are working a couple of days a week but on a relatively basic wage, that was less than the age pension. And so for a lot of these households, doesn't matter how much of their um, wage they put away, um, the age pension is always going to be worth a lot more than their super. Uh, and, of course, the implication of that is if you're worried about people living in, in poverty in retirement, um, then the big lever is the age pension and rent assistance, not superannuation. So that's what do we worry about in terms of the people at the bottom. In terms of people at the top, the principle that we normally apply is one of income smoothing. It's a well-established economic principle that there is no reason for people to preference spending at any point in their life course relative to any other. And so we have policies in place that are designed to ensure that people don't wind up in a world in which they effectively have a lot more income when they're working uh, and a lot less income when they are retired. Um, uh, and as I said, well-established principle. Also, the whole theory behind superannuation has always been that people tend to be um, more focused than they should be on the short term. Um, that's a well-established behavioural problem. Um, and compulsory super was designed to correct that a bit and push people um, towards saving a bit more while they're working. But, and this is a really important but, there is no ethical or economic reason to preference income in retirement over income when you're working. There is no reason for governments to force households to live a more dignified retirement than they live a dignified working life. Absolutely none. There is nothing special about retirement. Now, of course, if somebody people want to live a higher lifestyle in retirement than they do while they're working, that's fine, good luck to them. But there is no reason for governments to compel them to do that. And as we will come to, we, view, we think that at least historically, superannuation at 12% would have forced a lot of households into exactly that situation. 
Now, um, I suspect a lot of people have become a lot more focused on that recently because, of course, one of the big impacts of COVID-19 is that it's focused everyone's mind on the fact that dignity during working age is an issue and many people are suddenly finding themselves without a job uh, and indeed in a situation in which at least their short to medium term income may be materially less than what they're likely to get in retirement. So those are the overall objectives. Now, of course, the system also has to deal with the fact that People are different. Uh, and of course, the problem here is that if you ensure that absolutely everyone has enough in retirement so that they've got enough income in retirement to have a lifestyle in retirement that's equivalent to their lifestyle while they're working, if you're going to ensure that that's true for absolutely everyone, you will almost certainly wind up designing a system in which some people, in fact, many people, will wind up having more income in retirement than they do while they're working. Uh, and, of course, the principle here is that you should set your defaults for most people. If you set your defaults for absolutely everyone so that everybody meets a particular standard, you are, by definition, going to wind up with a lot of people exceeding it. And of course, this was the issue that um, uh, confronted a lot of people um, in the recent debate over insurance in superannuation. Everybody finding examples saying, oh, look, we found a person here who, if we apply the rules, will probably wind up without enough insurance, to which the answer was, you may well be right about that, but if we apply, create rules to look after that person, we will almost certainly wind up with a whole bunch of people with insurance that they don't need. Uh, and so we do have to set defaults, accepting that they are never going to be perfect for everyone and instead trying to set them so that they're right for most people. And, of course, the point about compulsory super is, by definition, it sets a default for um, essentially everyone to whom it applies. Compulsory super, as the name implies, is compulsory. Um, and, of course, where this plays out in terms of thinking about the super guarantee um, is that we need to ensure that we set the default, i.e. compulsory element of super, so that it leads to incomes in retirement looking, um, delivering a similar standard of living to working life incomes for most people, accepting it's never going to be perfect for everyone. So if we look at where we were, and I stress this is the pre-COVID analysis, and I'll be coming to the post-COVID analysis in just a moment, where are we? So on the Grattan model um, that we've um, previously published, we've refined it in a recent submission to the Retirement Incomes Review um, uh, call. Uh, uh, the numbers have shifted very slightly, but as they say, the answers haven't changed at all. For people in low-income brackets, um, we'll almost certainly wind up with replacement um, rates well in excess of 100%. And as I said, that's because the age pensions basically work worth a lot more than Newstart or working a couple of days a week on a basic wage. For people in the middle, they will comfortably be above the 70% replacement rate target. For people at the top, they're kind of there or thereabouts. Some might be very slightly below, but again, bearing in mind that you try and set the system for most people, um, we don't think that you should be increasing the super guarantee just to look after the top 10%. Um, David, no doubt, will talk about many of the um, potential issues um, in terms of modelling this. One thing I would point out is that this model does include everyone who puts in a tax return. So it does include people who work part-time, it does include people who go in and out of the workforce, and indeed it explicitly assumes that people are out of the workforce for the better part of five years. Um, of course, some people will retire early, they won't have such high replacement rates, but again, 
we've got to design the system for most people. If you design the system so that people who retire early are going to have good replacement rates, then by definition, people who retire at 65, 67, depending on exactly when your retirement age is, um, then by definition, they're going to have replacement rates well in excess of the target. So how does COVID-19 change all of these things? There's a lot of things that are going to be different. Um, firstly, overall, working age incomes are going to be lower than we all thought they were going to be. It's a bunch of people who are going to be unemployed. Um, uh, history suggests that that unemployment will be sticky um, so that uh, we're going to have an extended period in which unemployment is higher in Australia than it has been for a long time. Obviously, businesses are a lot more stressed. The claim that businesses were going to somehow pay for super guarantee out of their own pockets was certainly not true historically, and I would suggest it's even less likely in a world in which businesses are really, really stressed. It's possible that we will have lower returns on investment, although, as everyone um, on this call will know, um, uh, if I could really forecast that, I would be doing your job, not my job. Um, uh, we are going to have a big increase in government debt, and frankly, someone is going to have to pay for that. So taxes somewhere are going to be higher. The intergenerational bargain is busy being reshaped. There's a lot of 65-year-olds running around um, who explicitly on occasion say, I deserve this. I've paid taxes all my life. I shouldn't have to pay taxes anymore. The younger generation is going to have to look after themselves. Now, there's all kinds of problems with that argument, but in a world in which younger generation has just taken an enormous hit to its income to ensure that older people don't die, I suspect that those arguments are going to play rather differently going forwards. And the consequence of that is that investment taxation is up for grabs. Um, uh, if you look at the history of big jumps in government debt, so things like World War One, World War Two, what tended to happen afterwards was very big increases in taxes on investments, um, uh, taxes on um, uh, uh, inheritances and so on. I wouldn't be surprised if we see the same thing again here. Someone is going to have to pay for the big increase in government spending. If you look at the package that, that Josh Frydenberg announced last night, um, $130 billion, I mean, that's getting up towards 1% of GDP, sorry, 10% of GDP. That is a lot of money that somebody is going to have to pay for. Of course, the other thing about COVID-19 is that governments, and therefore I suspect voters, are all of a sudden getting much more used to governments making very tough decisions. Governments haven't made a lot of tough decisions for about 15 years. Um, I suspect the experience of the, of the last few weeks and no doubt the next couple of months is going to make governments much more robust about doing that. Um, and so, um, you know, a number of things that have been off the table, I suspect, will come onto the table. So how does this change the model? So this is the one I showed you just before. Um, now, I'm not going to pretend that in the last two weeks, Grattan has managed to completely rejig its model um, and plug in a whole bunch of variables uh, accounting for COVID-19. But we can, in a stylized way, talk about how things are going to change. Firstly, for those in the bottom 10%, so roughly speaking, those who are on Newstart, the fact that Newstart has increased means that their working age incomes have gone up. Consequently, their replacement rates effectively go down because they're presumably going to get roughly the same age pension as they were expecting previously. But because their working age incomes are higher, um, uh, that replacement rate is effectively lower. I think it'll still be comfortably well north of 100%, but it's just not going to be the sort of 160% we've been projecting previously. And I might add, not just projecting, if you look at the 
actual incomes of 65 to 74 year olds today compared to the actual incomes of that cohort 20 years ago um, and you look at it distribute it um, across the employment um, earnings um, distribution you get a graph that looks very similar to this one so you know obviously this is a projection but it's also very similar to reality so new start um, as i said in effect means that for people at the bottom replacement rates don't look quite so good as they used to um, now of course that's assuming that new start doesn't go back to where it was I actually think that's a pretty good assumption. In a world in which you have more or less, well, in fact, you have overnight double new start, it's going to be very hard to take it back to where it was. The second big effect is that overall there's going to be a fall in incomes over the income distribution. Now, of course, by definition, there will only ever be 20% in the bottom 20%, but it does mean that some people who used to have an earnings um, employment earnings that was, say, at the 50th percentile are now going to have earnings materially lower. So if you like, the entire population is effectively shifting left um, because their working age incomes will be lower. Of course, that also means that their superannuation will be lower, but the age pension will be the same. So overall, we would expect that, in effect, most people are, in fact, going to have higher replacement rates um, uh, because um, their uh, um, retirement incomes will be relatively similar, but their working age incomes will be lower. Now, of course, that's offset by another effect, which primarily affects those in the top 50%, which is assuming that they have lower returns or assuming that there are higher in taxes on investment. And I actually think both of those are probably pretty good assumptions. Then obviously replacement rates will be lower than otherwise. Um, of course, those the, the second and third impacts that I've just described effectively work in opposite directions. And so our guess is that overall, um, uh, once we're in a post-COVID-19 world, we'll wind up seeing a curve that's actually pretty similar to the one that we have historically drawn in terms of looking at replacement rates. So what are the policy implications of all of this? Well, firstly, I would suggest the superannuation guarantee increase is under a lot more pressure. Um, I note that um, uh, the minister today said it was not currently under consideration. I'm sure it's not currently under consideration. I'm guessing that the minister has one or two other fish to fry right at the moment. What are the... Um, but... Uh, uh, in this world in which, frankly, there was never a particularly good case for increasing the super guarantee, um, and in a world in which people have got much less working age income right now, and certainly much less income than they have been used to having, um, uh, I, I think that the uh, pressure not to increase the super guarantee will be quite substantial. The other thing is that super taxes are going to be under pressure. The fact that people over the age of 65, um, very, very few of them these days pay tax is clearly not sustainable, hasn't been sustainable for a long time. Uh, and as I said, I think the political economy has changed here in a world in which um, a younger generation has just taken a really big hit um, to its income uh, in order to keep an older generation alive, you know, as a kind of very crude um, summary of what's happened under COVID-19. I think it's... Um, a reasonable assumption that when governments go looking for money, and they will be, that they look at essentially the taxation of super. And I think the most obvious thing to look at will be um, uh, various ways that you can change the amount of tax paid 
uh, on superannuation, particularly for those in the retirement phase. Um, obviously, we've already seen some of that, um, but there is no magic to the $1.6 million cap. It could easily, and I would argue should be, a great deal lower than that. So um, that's a couple of things to think about. Um, I think the principles haven't changed. Of course, how they apply has changed a lot with COVID-19. And I think the reality is that both the super guarantee and taxation of super are going to be under pressure um, once we're on the far side of the immediate health crisis and economic crisis. Thank you. Thanks very much, John. Uh, fantastic. Um, before we move to you, David, we have a polling question that I wanted to put up on the screen um, and sort of speaks to sort of the mandated level of superannuation savings. Um, the question is, what do you think should be the level of mandated superannuation savings? And you've got five choices um, there. Uh, higher than 12%, 12%, 10%, 9.5%, less than 9.5%, and that could also be zero. So we'll assume that that can also represent zero. So if you take a moment to, um, to uh, have a look at, at the poll and, and to submit your, your responses, we, we can use them as we um, start, um, just before we start the next session. And we'll, we'll come back to you, John, in terms of the, the feedback, getting some early commentary in now. <laughs> wow. Very, very, very strong uh, response for higher than 12%. So maybe we'll... Uh, the turkeys are still voting against Christmas. <laughs> uh, look, it's, uh, we'll come back. There's a, there's a lot more, I think, to, to, to touch, on, touch on there, but a uh, pretty strong demand that uh, increase is, uh, is what people are asking for. Let's um, pause the poll um, for the moment and uh, move to, to David for your... Um, chance of reply, and then we'll go into some deeper conversations specifically around um, these numbers. David. Good. Uh, thanks very much, Alex. Uh, good morning, everybody. Just morning in uh, Melbourne. Um, and thanks, John, for that update. I want to start with the fact that John and I agree on a fair bit. <laughs> we, we agree that it's a system, um, and it's a system that has several pillars to it, the age pension, compulsory super, and voluntary savings both inside super and outside super. So we have to look at the total system. I also agree, agree with John that defaults make sense for many, in fact, most people. And I'd go further the default in terms of an SG contribution, but one of the areas in defaults we haven't tackled is defaults in the retirement space, but that's for another day. John also mentioned that we need to be very clear about the objectives. And I absolutely agree. In our submission to the Retirement Income Review, we actually suggested that we needed an objective of the age pension, as well as superannuation, as well as the total system. What are we really trying to do here? The age pension is there, primarily, I would argue, for poverty alleviation. And, and yet, two-thirds of retirees receive a part or full age pension. They are not all in need they're not all in poverty. So we need to think about what the purpose of the age pension is. I think the purpose of the overall system is to maintain living standards. It's not to have a high living standard in retirement, but it's broadly to enable most people to maintain the living standards they had during most of their working years. 
So that then comes down to replacement rates. And the Grattan graph looks at replacement rates at different income deciles. I think in terms of replacement rates, I'm very happy, and in fact, it makes a lot of sense that the replacement rate should be higher for low-income earners and lower for higher-income earners in an overall system. That makes a lot of sense. Before I get to a couple of quibbles in the, the Grattan assumptions, I want to raise the question whether 70% is the right number. That's the target that Grattan has used. That's the target that we have used also in the Melbourne Mercer Global Pension Index. But housing costs continue to flow into retirement. That's 70% after tax. It's a net replacement rate. Assume that people own their own home and, um, if you like, had a roof over their head. Um, we are going to see going forward more and more people moving into retirement with ongoing housing costs, whether that's rental or whether it's uh, continuing to pay the mortgage. OK, now let's have a look at the some of the Grattan assumptions. And John almost forewarned that I, you that I would quibble with a couple of things here. Um, the first one is Grattan assumes that you will have retirement income from the future pension age of 67 to 92. And yet we know a lot of people retire before 67. And they do that for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes it's voluntary. Sometimes they're made redundant. Sometimes it's their health or the need to care for a partner or an ageing parent. So there is a question, and there's a very valid question, as who should look after or should, who should provide the income for people who retire before the pension age? The pension age is preservation age will become 60. So there's this seven-year potential gap. Some people just have to retire at 60 or 62. Their body is worn out. Um, should that be the disability support pension? And yet they can access their super from 60. So there's a question about what the purpose of the system is in those five or seven years. Um, and I think part of the purpose of super is actually to provide that flexibility and that support. A fundamental issue that we and I hate to get technical for a moment in the model. John and the Grattan Institute um, present values the model using CPI. And I have no problem with that, um, that uh, um, income in retirement grows up with inflation. But what we also know in the model is that the pension goes up with wages. So in the latter years of your retirement, your, your real income is going up because the age pension is going up with wages, but we're deflating by prices. That, what that means is that the Grattan numbers are averaged over the 25 years from 67 to 92. If you look at the OECD numbers, the replacement rate in the first year of retirement for an average income earner is 39% in Australia, not 70%. And the difference between those numbers is because the age pension is increasing with wages while we're deflating with prices. I'll come back to the age pension in a moment. The other question I have, and many models do this, I'm not having a Grattan here at all, is that we just have a set of assumptions that have no sensitivity to them. What happens if the investment earning rate is 1% lower over the long term? That will have a material impact. Um, we need to understand the sensitivity of the variables. 
Now, coming down to some of the impacts of COVID-19, I agree with John that we are likely to see lower investment returns. That, of course, will mean reduced compounding and lower benefits. We're also going to see higher government debt, which will probably lead to higher taxes, possibly on investment income, possibly elsewhere. But there's the other part of that, and that is that we're likely to see reduced government benefits because the governments are going to both increase the income they need and reduce the benefits they pay out. They're just going to have to do that. That will mean pressure on the age pension. And John's suggested that governments are going to have to make tough decisions. One of those tough decisions, I think, is likely to be that the pension will be indexed to prices and not wages going forward. That will have a significant impact on our future models. We're also going to have concerns about future health costs and future aged care costs. So we might even see the house started to be included in the assets test. So the age pension is going to get tougher and tougher to get. So if people want to maintain their living standards in retirement, my argument is we are going to need people to fund themselves, whether that's through compulsory super or voluntary savings. We need that multi-pillar system. The government pillar is going to become less. Therefore, I suggest the funded pillar <clears throat> has to become more. So look over the long term, less reliance on government, more reliance on self-funding. That brings us back to what the objectives of the system are. We have to be very clear on that. I think we also need to be clear and think about who's covered by the system. There are currently big gaps in the system, in the gig worker space, in the self-employed space who are not saving for retirement. And I'm not talking about the wealthy self-employed. I'm talking about the Uber drivers, the local plumber, etc., who are putting very little money aside for the future. And to just finish with, as we revamp the retirement system, we need to think about focus on retirement income, not just accumulating wealth. Thanks, thanks, David. But before I move to you, John, David, did you have a comment on the polling um, result in terms of 32% saying that uh, it should be 12% uh, or higher than 12%? Um, I'm, I'm not really surprised. I suspect the audience is a little bit vested uh, and, and, and is in the industry. So, um, you know, they've been expecting 12%. Um, so I'm, I'm not really surprised by that at all. I, I think, you know, we are living in um, new circumstances, unprecedented circumstances, to use that overused word at the moment, but it's very true. Um, it's fair that we need to think about what the system's trying to deliver. But if we rely less on the government because of increased government debt, then I think 12% is still a go over the medium term. I'll switch to you, John. What, what's uh, your so, thoughts and your right of reply as well? Yeah. Um, so, look, again, I'm not surprised that the, um, uh, the turkeys continue not to vote for Christmas. It would be weird if they did. Um, uh, but um, in terms of a couple of the points that David raised, just a few things to think about. In terms of that early retirement, as I said, obviously that's an issue. Obviously the disability pension is designed for people who can't work. I would suggest if some people choose not to work longer than that, um, uh, to retire before the retirement age, that's fine. But 
this is about the compulsory system. If those people want to save more than the compulsory system in their life, you know, and then retire early, good luck to them. But the problem is that if you design the compulsory system to look after them, then by definition, everyone who does work to 67 is going to wind up with substantially more uh, than they need in retirement. Um, secondly, in terms of uh, the issue around the age pension being indexed um, to wages um, in our model, I think a lot of this um, depends then on how people draw down um, their um, superannuation. Uh, because if people choose to essentially draw down their superannuation quite quickly at the beginning of their retirement and much less of it towards the end of their retirement, then two things happen. One is they, in fact, qualify for more age pension over their life course. Two, they wind up effectively matching, winding up with a relatively constant level of real, i.e. CPI deflated income, over their lifetime. Indeed, one of the big implications of that I've taken away from the work that we've done is, frankly, people are massively underspending in the period when in the decade between 65 and 75, um, partly because they don't register that the age pension really is a very good longevity insurance. Um, uh, and then, of course, what happens is they hit the age of 80 and they suddenly discover they actually can't spend um, uh, because, you know, they're spending their lives basically going to the doctors and, um, and inherently uh, households over the age of 80 tend to spend a lot less than 70-year-old households. Um, and so uh, I think you can deal with that, but frankly, only by educating people that uh, the minimum drawdown rates might be what's legislatively there. And that's, I think, something where the financial planning profession has a real role to say to people, you probably should be drawing down your superannuation much faster in the first 10 years of retirement than the remainder. In terms of sensitivity analysis to in, uh, returns, that's actually something that we did do um, in our model and we published the results of that. Um, the short answer is if returns are about one percentage point less, then roughly speaking, um, uh, re uh, replacement rates are two to three percentage points less. And as you'll have seen from those curves, that means most people are going to be comfortably above that 70%. Uh, in terms of the a question that that then raises is 70% the right replacement level level you're absolutely right it is an issue with more people not owning their own homes outright as they retire there again we're into this problem of averages how do we deal with the fact that most people do and probably still will own their own homes outright when they retire finally in terms of um, government benefits I, I agree with you they're going to be under pressure I think that the place that governments are likely to go is in terms of um, taking more of the value of owner-occupied housing into account. I'd be very surprised if they wind up only um, indexing the age pension to inflation, CPI inflation. And the, the, the reason I would be very surprised about that is it inherently means that the value of the age pension at a point that a person retires will fall further and further behind typical wages of everybody else. And I would be surprised if governments are prepared to live with that as an outcome. Also bearing in mind that the um, intergenerational reports have shown pretty consistently that even with the age pension as it's currently designed, it doesn't chew up a particularly large amount of GDP going forwards. Um, uh, it's not the part of, of future government spending that really causes problems.
Uh, and then very last of all, you talked about the gig, and, gig economy and the self-employed. I agree they're an issue that is without doubt the major hole in the system um, uh, and we need to be thinking about how to do it. Although I note, of course, increasing the super guarantee from nine and a half to 12 isn't going to help them because by definition, they're not putting any money into super at the moment anyway. Uh, I, I agree, John. I, I, and moving the self-employed into super, I wouldn't jump them straight to nine and a half percent. You've got to do it, do, do it gradually. Um, at, Absolutely. Um, I think it, one of the questions you've raised there is that many retirees underspend in their retirement and they are risk averse, and we know that. Um, I, I think one of the things we can explore here over the longer term is a better default retirement product. Um, the current default product is really an account-based pension with minimum drawdowns, and that's what a lot of people gravitate to. Um, that's really the anchor. And we need to think about a much better product there. Um, now's not the time to do this in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis, but over the long term, we need a better default retirement product. And I think one of the issues there is that the COVID, uh, sorry, is that the um, uh, minimum drawdowns are inevitably seen as a guidance from government as to what you should draw down, and they are without doubt way too low. I, I agree, and I think um, that... They, they can be higher, and if we have a, if we think of either the age pension or longevity product in the latter years of retirement, then they can afford to draw that down, then supported by the longevity product. Um, I think the other concern is that many retirees are risk averse because they don't know what their potential aged care costs might be, and there's misinformation here. Most aged care costs are paid by government. Um, but yep. people are concerned that they will have to pay some. So, they, it, again, it's a lack of understanding. John, can I go to you in terms of, you know, your, your modelling in terms of individuals versus a household? You know, given that most people, when they come to retirement, will still be, uh, you know, in a, in a relationship? And, and how much does so, that play a part? Yeah. So, for households where both partners work, um, then kind of by definition, their working age income is roughly speaking the sum of their working age income uh, and their retirement income is the sum of their superannuation. So that, that's absolutely captured by the model. Um, their um, uh, pension income may be less if they're in a couple, um, but we also know that um, couples tend to be further towards the right-hand end of the um, distribution. Um, and so... Uh, in fact, if we look at actual replacement rates for couples, they tend to be substantially higher than they are for individuals. So um, it's obviously a much, much more complicated modelling exercise to think about couples rather than individuals. But our view is if it's OK for individuals, it's probably not going to be a mile off for couples. The other thing to bear in mind, of course, is that most people will spend the last 10 years at least of their retirement as a single. Um, you know, that's just kind of the law of averages and the fact that people die when they get older. Um, and so, um, you know, the majority of, of, of inverted commas households wind up being single households for, you know, a good part of their retirement because one of the partners dies. Um, in fact, on average, by definition, one of the partners will die before um, uh, life expectancy and one will die after. Uh, and so... Um, uh, that's one of the problems, again, of averages. You could design a kind of U-Butte fabulous model that assumed that people were in couples for their entire lives, and, of course, the reality is it doesn't work like that. David, did you have a response? 
Uh, yes, look, I, I, I think we, we do have this disconnect that the age pension means tests are based on, you know, couples get less than two singles uh, and, and that's the way it's worked. Super is based on an individual, the age pension is a couple. So John's right. I mean, a couple will get less pension than shown in the Grattan model. Um, but, yeah, it's very difficult to do a model on those lines. The other thing I think that I really didn't touch on in terms of the modelling, um, and that is the, the, the back end um, after 92. Many people are going to live beyond 92. The age pension is certainly um, a quite reasonable longevity protection uh, for the lower middle income. Now, again, it comes back to the objective of the system. What are we trying to deliver? And are we trying to maintain living real living standards? Um, I think we do need longevity products, and they will cost money because life expectancy is continuing to increase, notwithstanding what we might see as a COVID-19 blip. Um, I think the other issue that doesn't get much of a discussion is a recognition that life expectancy um, not quite is driven, but is linked to socioeconomic grouping. So the higher income earners live longer than middle income earners who live longer than lower income earners, broad averages. Um, and some of those differences are quite material. Um, so even by using 92 as the average life expectancy, we're going to see a lot of people at the upper end of an income deciles live longer than that. Can we come back to the intergenerational uh, divide? And, and I think the pressure that, that we're seeing between home ownership comes up continue, you know, continuously. There is a question around sort of even putting a, you know, a, a somewhat cap on how much a house should be included. You know, the first 300000 is is a cap if you own a house and then the rest is, is considered part of the asset test. Maybe I'll start with you, John, first in terms of your response um, to that in terms of maybe making a cap to address some of this intergenerational issue and some people preferring not to own a house and preferring to rent? Um, so certainly at the moment, the system is actually really unfair. Um, so if you hold your assets um, in an investment, um, you wind up in a much worse position than you would be if those same assets have been invested in a house. Um, and, and it's a real skew in the entire system. Uh, and ironically, I think as we have more and more people who don't, frankly, just can't afford to buy a home starting to retire, I think that the unfairness of that is going to be um, something that people are a lot more aware of. Um, in terms of the policy response, you're absolutely right. At the moment, we have a system which is completely the wrong way around. So what it, in effect, does is take into account the first $200,000 of the value of your home and ignores all of the rest. Now, you know, if you're starting with a clean sheet of paper, surely you'd do it the other way around. You'd say, well, I'm not going to count the first, you know, $500,000 of your home, and then I'm going to count everything else. Um, so I think absolutely saying that we're going to take into account the value of owner-occupied housing over a cap, um, and no doubt one of the ways to do this from a political economy perspective is pick a high cap and then let inflation do its dirty work. Um, uh, and, of course, inflation of house prices tends to be a particularly um, uh, rapid, or at least it has been. Um, so, yes, that is how I would go about trying to do this. Um, 
uh, as we've been discussing, in a post-COVID-19 world, that's definitely, I suspect, going to be one of the things on the table. It is also, I might add, I think the only policy issue on which every single think tank in Australia agrees, irrespective of its political orientation. <laughs> um, so this sort of complete unity ticket. Of course, the other thing is you do have to worry about people whose only asset is their home and it's worth a lot. And, and the answer, of course, to that is we have a perfectly good system in place already called the Pension Loan Scheme that says if you want to take out the full value of the pension and effectively um, pay that or have rather have your um, uh, legatees pay that back when you sell the home, that system's already in place. It's a perfectly good system. We don't encourage people to use it very much, and that's a problem. Um, but uh, in terms of looking after people in that world, it's a perfectly good policy solution. And the only people who lose out of that are the people who are hoping to inherit from them. Um, so the existing <laughs> retirees will, by definition, be in exactly the same position that they are in at the moment. Your final comments um, to you, David, because uh, we're wrapping up in one minute quickly. Sure. Um, I agree with John. Um, I, I think including the main residents in the assets test makes a lot of sense. But let me also suggest that under the retirement income review, I think we need to simplify the means tests. Uh, the assets test and the income test are overly complicated. We need to get down to one test, and that test needs to include starting at a fairly high level and then gradually working down the main residence. But I realise we're now down in the last 30 seconds, so I'll hand back to you, Alex. Uh, thank you very much. I know this conversation could probably go on for a few hours or days, to be, to be fair. Um, please, join, please join me in thanking John and, and David, and I'd like to switch back to Lawrence. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Thank you.